Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. Today is May 22nd, and do we have an episode for you? Um, we are going to be talking about Amazon, uh, the good, the, um, well, the not so good. And the and, ugly. And, well, there's a lot of ugly, um, but everything <laughs> in between. We figured it was time to do kind of a big Amazon episode. But before we dig into that, how about the basics, huh? Yes, wonderful. So it is still May, which mm-hmm. means that um, we have special episodes to announce. Our query show for Patreon subscribers is already out. It came out on Thursday the 11th. Mm-hmm. So head on over to Patreon if you want to give that a listen to. Otherwise, <laughs> stay tuned this Thursday, May 25th, for our first Pages episode. Mm-hmm. Um, that is where we critique, you guessed it, first pages of <laughs> of, of manuscripts. Um, so send those to us at printroompodcast at gmail.com. And yeah, we'll get it to you then. I'm so excited to record this one. I love the first pages episodes. Yeah, those are good. Um, they, I feel like we get into a lot, you know. We do. Um, we get into a lot of different stuff related to um, openings and tension and all sorts of stuff. And if you are a writer uh, working through the beginning of your novel, we highly recommend it. Um, but we've also got another announcement that I am excited about, as are you, I believe. Um, and if you follow us online, we sort of hinted at it a little bit that we might be doing something like this. Um, but we have a third special episode per month Say to what? announce. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're adding some. We're adding some content for the paid subscribers. Um, this is for our ten dollar a month level. So if you are already subscribed to our query show and our first pages show. You will already have access to this. Okay, so a little backstory on what this is. We were kind of talking, and we realized that um, we wanted to do a writer-specific episode. And obviously, you know, we have the two. We have the Queer Show, and we have the First Pages Show. And both of those are meant as kind of separate from the main show, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we don't want to spend too much time during our free episodes talking about really specific kind of, you know, industry writing things. Um, So we kind of section them off, and... We kind of came to the conclusion that we wanted to do something a little bit more crafty, as in like the craft of writing. I am often Uh, crafty, (laughs) but yes, you are correct. Um, But so we came up with a a third concept that we're going to do once a month, um, and we're calling it Writing by Reading. And the idea here is that we're going to pick one passage every month, and it's going to be from some book we all really like. Maybe it's the, you know, whatever the big new novel is that comes out. Maybe it's something we've all read and loved over the past few years. And we're going to isolate a passage in it, okay? And we're going to take that passage, and we're going to break it down, and we're going to basically answer the question, why is this so good, you know? Um so, and the idea here is that the best way to talk about writing and the best way to really learn writing um, is by reading. Yeah. And so I'm really excited because we're going to be able to dig into a lot of our favorite books, a lot of stuff that everybody's read that we're all already excited about. And then, you know, as writers, I feel like so often the question is when we read something, it's like, man, how how did they pull that off? You know, how did that happen? Or why do I love this yeah, so much? Exactly. Why am I crying? Exactly. And I feel like we can pick certain moments in, you know, contemporary literature and actually try to answer some of those questions. You know, and one thing that makes me kind of excited is it's going to get us away from the platitudes of writing advice, you know, show, don't tell, and, you know, all this kind of boring stuff that you hear. Or don't um, start a novel with somebody waking up. Right, you exactly. can only say that so many Just times. The, the yeah. various cliches that kind of get seep into writing advice when it's not attached to a certain text. And what we're going to do is we're going to bring in text, and that way we can actually 
talk about some things that don't come up in your standard workshop or don't come up in, you know, your basic, you know, lecture about, you know, you know, something you'd hear at a writing conference. Like we're going to be able to dig into things, you know, the stuff that actually excites us. And I hope that it let, it lends itself to really specific conversation and really interesting discussion of craft and execution. And I would say we're going wider because we're going to be going beyond those first pages, but we're also going a lot deeper. Yeah. So um, I'm really excited to talk about issues that present themselves in novels or don't present themselves um, yeah. later on in a book. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because these are not all going to, you know, probably very few of these passages are going to be actual first pages, right? So it's going to lend itself to a different kind of discussion. And I also, I also think it's great because, um, you know, we're getting away from people's specific work. Like if you're someone who isn't currently querying a book or isn't currently working on a novel – um, you know, maybe you haven't had much use for these episodes, um, but this one really is for anyone working on anything, and um, we really encourage you to join us. So when's the first day we're doing it? So our first Writing by Reading episode debuts June 15th, okay. so that is a Thursday. Our mm-hmm. query shows usually go live on the second Thursday of uh-huh. every month. Our first pages go live on the fourth. Sure. The fourth Thursday, I should mm-hmm. say. Yeah. Um, and so we're putting this one smack dab in the middle to kind of give you something yeah. that kind of pulls you away from the get an agent, get published specific <laughs> Exactly. Aspects. And we've talked about that before, right? <laughs> like we don't really love that conversation, you know? And this is going to be a chance to kind of get away from it and get back to kind of celebrating really good writing. Um, I think we've picked a passage that we're going to do for our first one. You know one. what? I want to open it up to the, to the group yeah. here. So, I mean, that would be one thing. If you've got some bit in contemporary lit or some book you recently read and you've there's some part of that book that really stands out to you, um, send it to us. Let us know. And maybe we can work it into one of these shows because that's the idea is like find the things we're most excited about being published right now and figure out why they work. And if you love a book, if you say the craft of some sort of book or like you're so confused about why you love something and we've never read it. Send it to us, and so we can we can like it's kind of like our own mini book club. Yeah. We'll read it, and exactly. then we can critique it, and yeah. it'll be wonderful for everybody. It's like a really writing focused book club. Yeah, basically. that's exactly what um, it is. Which I think is going to be fun, and I I think we've got kind of a passage in mind that we're going to do for the first one, but I don't want to reveal that yet. So we'll we'll hang on to that. Yeah, but if we come across something better, yeah, if you've got a better, we're very flighty, so we change our minds. <laughs> um, so, so send them to us either at printrunpodcast at gmail.com or at printrunpodcast on Twitter. Yep. Um, so should we get into it? I think we should. Obviously, the topic this week is Amazon. Um, and luckily enough for us and sort of the reason it sort of came to mind this specific week um, is there was some, you know, we had some Amazon-related news. Um, we have seen the debut of Amazon Charts. Um, Amazon so, Charts. Tell us what Amazon Charts is, Laura. Amazon Charts is a Amazon-produced bestseller list. Uh-huh. So Amazon, I mean, I'm sure if you've ever bought a book on Amazon ever mm-hmm. or any other product on Amazon, you've noticed that their their products have had rankings, yeah. right? And if you're a writer who's published on Amazon, you'll notice that those rankings are figured literally every hour. That is not an mm-hmm. exaggeration. Every single hour. Um, through their very proprietary algorithm, et cetera. Well, now, given the news that we've talked about several times on this podcast before about the New York Times bestseller list shrinking their Uh list um, and other lists kind of not coming in to fill the hole, Amazon has raised their hand and said, I'll do it. And of of course they will, as as we'll see. Um, (laughs) But so this is significant in a lot of ways, I think. 
Um, the first of which is for all the reasons we've kind of talked about on prior episodes, right? Um, the bestseller list is more than just a metric, right? It's a means through which um, authors are discovered by readers. Mm-hmm. You know, people look at the New York Times bestseller list and look at the list and find things they want to read, right? Um, it's a manner it's of prestige. It's prestige. It helps. It helps certain authors break out in certain genres, especially like what we talked about. You know, having all those different delineations, you know, can help create recognition where it's some its is own due. marketing tool. Exactly. It's a thing that you can you know say that you have as a publisher. Um, it's all these things, and but it, fundamentally, it's a metric of sales, right? And it's um, you know it records sales from all the major you know retail outlets right Amazon and Barnes and Noble and uh, Books of Wonder you know any the uh, um, you know big I guess wait I'm thinking of Books of Million um, in DC the big store <laughs> but I'm sure Books, Books of, of Wonder, Wonder is, a, is a Nielsen bookstand bookstore <laughs> Books of Wonder is a small little store in New York City that sells children's books it's lovely you should go it is lovely um, but uh, the point is that the New York Times and other bestseller lists. Um, they take into account data from everywhere, right? And it kind of paints this picture of these are the books selling the most now. And based on those sales, you know, prestige is awarded and recognition yep. is awarded. But now on an Amazon list, there's only there's only one there's, source. Well, there are that, there are two. Uh-huh. Well, the, technically, there are four sets of lists. Uh-huh. And it's not separated out by paperback and hardcover and fiction and right. nonfiction, etc. The, the delineations are different. There are four lists, or children's or anything. Right. There are four lists. Uh-huh. There's fiction and nonfiction. Okay. And within fiction and nonfiction, there are two charts. Uh-huh. The two charts being the most sold and the most read. The most sold is Amazon only. Um, it is books sold or borrowed across Amazon platforms. Okay. That is Kindle. That is Audible. That is all of the Kindle Unlimited, which are which is basically the lending service yeah. that that Amazon does for a subscription. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the normal sales. Right. Most read, I find really interesting because uh, Amazon is watching. Amazon is Big Brother. Yeah. Well, <laughs> how, what do you mean by that? So. Amazon has the Kindle platform and it has the Audible platform, right, uh-huh. which are digital metrics or yeah. which are digital ways for, for books to be consumed. Yeah. Well, they keep track of those metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, they are tracking how many hours you've listened to a book. They are tracking how many pages you're turning through in your Kindle. Yeah. So right now, The Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale is number one in fiction for most read books. Uh-huh. Based that, on – Interaction and not sales. Based on interaction and not sales. Yeah, that's interesting. Which is fascinating to me. That is. And also a little scary. Um, Well, so I find – I actually find the sales one to be the more – I mean, obviously, you know, the most read is a brand new thing. Yeah. We don't know – you know, no one's ever been able to provide that kind of a list before. And it sort of gets at, um, you know, interaction as opposed to pure sales. But the sales one is interesting to me because – it's going to have this effect where sales not on Amazon matter less to publishers um, because for all the reasons we just talked about that you want to end up on the bestseller list, if this is the new bestseller list and this is the list you're trying to get on, then why would you put any energy – I mean other than you know just sales and revenue. But like in terms of like actually trying to build your brand and stuff, like if you're going to sell a book, you're going to want to do it on Amazon because – um, this is where you can climb the list that everybody's looking at for all the same reasons you want to climb lists. And if Amazon can do this, then it, it's going to have this effect where it starts to make the sales through other retailers a little bit less relevant and a little bit less relevant just because it's taking for itself the prestige that used to be assigned to other outlets like the New York Times or 
um, you know, Wall Street Journal or any other place that does like a book list and it's describing it to itself. And it feels to me like one more source of just kind of integration of all realms of the publishing world that Amazon is trying for. <laughs> and you we'll know. get more into exactly what that means a little bit later on in this episode. Sure, but like just think for a second of all the Amazon properties for like as they relate to books. Like you've got obviously the site where that sells books. You've got a bestseller list where people can look and see which books are doing well. You've got Goodreads where people can talk about and rate books. You've got consumer reviews. Physical readers. You've got physical readers where people can actually buy the books. You've got self-publishing platforms yeah. where now where people can um, you know, actually produce the books. And you're kind of getting to a point where all, all of the aspects are starting to kind of be controlled or discussed or at least Amazon has a foothold into each of them. And I think that's going to have really interesting effects on like charts. Um, you know, this is new, and I think that it's gonna um, it's gonna have an effect, and it's gonna make sales um, for all the reasons that sales are important for things that aren't money. You know, prestige, brand building, all those things. Um, now all of a sudden, that's tied into Amazon as well. So when when this chart was released, David Negar, who's the um, Amazon's VP of Kindle content, yeah. released a statement and. The real thing here is that he says that this is a tool for discoverability, and mm -hmm. that this is a tool um, that is an attempt that is attempting to provide, and this is a direct quote, pure data recommendation that cuts through some of the human curation that colors other bestseller lists. Um, That's an interesting yeah, phrase. So, so based here, on what so we're here's talk what about. so here's what he's saying. There, he's saying that a lot of bestseller lists, and he doesn't name names. Um, add, remove, and re-rank books based on how they feel. Uh -huh. And that the customers, yeah. Amazon's customers, have asked them for a sales-based chart of what they should be reading and what they should be paying That's attention free from to. the quote-unquote biases of that you know, free, curators. That is free, free from yeah. curators. Yeah. And so, I mean, and we'll we'll get into what that means a little bit later on. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm going to call shenanigans a little bit on kind of the goals of this because this is not adding any new metric necessarily for a reader. Like like What's an Amazon shopper, read? Amazon shopper wasn't having any trouble discovering books. Like if you go look up one thing on Amazon, you'll get an email a week later of ten similar things. Sure. You know, they're they're they have all of these ratings that are very visible. They've got yeah. these things changing hour and hour and hour and hour. And if you're a reader and if you're a voracious reader particularly, you can go on to a bestseller list at any time and find different books on there. Mm -hmm. If discoverability, if you're discovering books that you don't know about, this isn't going to add anything to you. What this is doing is it's consolidating power. Yeah. That's and here's true. and here's why I think that. That's not just like me well, like I mean, in obvious. my conspiracy yeah, theory. I don't think that's a cons yeah. But here's why. Because the Amazon chart list lists agents. Yeah. On there. Yeah, that is an interesting feature. So, this is really weird, you guys. Um if you can click on it, it doesn't list the price right away. It has a nice like little graphic button that you can click and being taken yeah. to um that you can be taken to the the page by. It doesn't even have a little blurb about what the book is. Yeah. But what it lists, the title of the book, mm. the author, who the publisher is, and who the agent is. So that's let's just make sure that that's clear. That's new. 
on in terms of like a list of you know like the New York Times bestseller list does not list the agent of the book. Nobody lists you know, the agent. This, this is a very new new thing. So why do you why do you think they're doing that? Because who is that for? Like when I when I sat in front of my computer this uh-huh. afternoon, I looked at that and I hadn't noticed that before because that's not in any of the articles talking about the charts. Mm-hmm. But I sat down and I looked at it. And who is that for? Like, who needs information about who the agent is on the display page beyond yeah. the blurb, beyond yeah. the the price? Yeah. And all the only reason I can come up with is that not only is this a tool aimed at readers, but this is a tool aimed at writers. Yeah. This is a tool aimed at the industry itself. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something that is going to um, be referenced by writers looking to publish. And as Amazon continues to try to dig into that market, this is going to be something that people check. And so I think you're right that it does end up having this kind of consolidating effect where it's just one more thing. Like, you know, there's, you know, there are sites, you know, for people who are in publishing, um, like Publishers Marketplace, right, which is a, um, you know, just, a trade just, website. Yeah, it's just a trade website, you know, d- information, database deals, that sort of thing. Um, and this feels like the sort of information you'd find there. It is. Um, but now it's kind of outward facing and now it's going to be used by – You don't have to pay $25 um, exactly, a month for it. Exactly. It's the same sort of thing you're seeing with other stuff. Um, but that I think the key takeaway here is all of this kind of fits a larger pattern that we're kind of about to get into. Um, and so let's get into it. Let's do let's, it. Let's, let's talk about Amazon. So before we get into the nitty-gritty, I want to share with you my super scientific survey I yeah. did last week on Twitter Yeah. Uh, because Twitter does polls now and I – and right. I like to use that. So I asked if people use Amazon to buy books, yeah. right? And 71% of the people who responded out of 262 replies uh, said that they buy books on Amazon. Of course. Only 8% of the people who responded said no because they're evil. Right. I mean, because <laughs> because that's not a – well, so that doesn't surprise me at all. It's not a very pragmatic stance. I mean no. – it, but that's the rhetoric you hear in it, book publishing exactly. and, is Amazon is evil. And so that's the kind of the dichotomy. Like, of course, everyone's buying their books on Amazon. It's the cheapest, easiest place to do it. Like, that's, um, you know, the only no, very, very, and as we're going to kind of discuss here, very, very, very few people are doing the thing everyone always talks about doing, which is, you know, boycotting Amazon and not going to Amazon. No one's doing that. I bought a book on Amazon last week. Like, it's... Everyone is using Amazon because it's really, really good for consumers. So let's um, let's so, talk a little bit more about yeah. why Amazon is good. Yeah. Let's give it a fair shake. Um, so, well, the first – I mean there's a few reasons and they're all really obvious for anyone who's ever been on the site. Um, low prices. You know, things are cheap. Um, there's more books than anywhere. You know, if you walk into a bookstore, there's no – I mean it's – you know, you're not going to have the same selection as you have online, which mm-hmm. is every single book. Um, you know, things are always in stock, and if they're not, they're pretty quick about getting it in stock. Um, you get personal recommendations. You've got all sorts of information at your fingertips. You've got, um, you know, reader reviews. You've got a million different things to make your decisions, including, uh, you know, pathways to other stuff you might like. Yeah. Like, it's really easy to use. There's also um, an accessibility aspect to it in terms of formatting. You know, we've got audiobooks, we've got ebooks, we've got print books, we've got ebook lending. Yeah. Um, we've got subscription formats. You also, from an author standpoint, have and and you can't, you know, discount this, uh, accessibility as a as an author who is wanting to self-publish. Yeah. Um, and so when we say that Amazon has more books than anywhere else, that is literally true. Yeah. 
because a lot of self-publishers go through there. Yeah. Um, to give you a few metrics about that, um, indie authors publish 34% of all ebooks sold in the United States. Um, That's really high. It's really, wow. really, I really high. Didn't know that. And um, so that's so a third of all ebooks are published by indie authors. And out of all of the book sales in the United States, 42% of those sales are ebooks. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're talking a third of 42%. Yeah. Which is a, an extraordinary amount. Um, and out of those ebooks, you know, Amazon sells 83% of them. So when we consider, you know, the most ebooks, the most books, yeah. Amazon has it. And they have it cheaply. Right. And they've got, you know, and I guess more Amazon things. You know, they've got a reader. You know, we haven't even mentioned the Kindle yet, which is kind of going to be, which is going to lie at the heart of this entire history. You know, they're you $30 know. now. Kindles are? Kindle, well, Kindles are have, $30. Do you have a I have a Kindle from 2010. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't use it anymore because my life is reading on a computer. Sure. But um, when I travel. Yeah. Um, so obviously those are lots of really good things, uh, for anyone who's looking to kind of buy books on the public facing end. Um, but obviously that isn't the whole story and it's not, um, any of the reasons, I guess it ties into some of the reasons why people in the book industry find Amazon to be such a destructive force. Um, and why, you know, anytime they do anything, (laughs) everyone panics, um, because, you know, fairly and unfairly, as we'll see, you know, there are times... I mean, some of these fights that Amazon has where they're right, and they're actually right a lot, and that's almost kind of the problem. Um, I mean, let's, let's talk about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> so, what? This is where we should start. We should start with um, we should start with their fundamental philosophy on books when they first got started, late '90s, or I guess mid '90s, but really they got going kind of you know 1999, you know, kind of somewhere in there. So, what does Jeff um, Bezos, the founder yeah. of Amazon, think about books? Okay, so um, that's that's an interesting question. Um, and I mean, the truth, the truth of the matter with him is that he wanted to set up an online retailer. You know, he did not get in. Amazon is not a book seller because Jeff Bezos, you know, loved getting bedtime stories read to him at night. You know what I mean? This is not a tale. Poor Jeff. I mean, maybe he did, maybe he does love books, but he doesn't claim to anywhere and he barely talks about them. He doesn't, you know, this is, um, this is a sales thing. You know, he wants to move products. He wants to move units. And so I want to read something real quick um, from a profile um, on Amazon that George Packer did for The New Yorker in 2014. Um, So this is him talking about Bezos. It wasn't a love of books that led him to start an online bookstore. It was totally based on the property of books as a product, Shel Kafan, Bezos' former deputy, says. Books are easy to ship and hard to break, and there was a major distribution warehouse in Oregon. Crucially, there are far too many books in and out of print to sell even a fraction of them at a physical store. The vast selection made possible by the Internet gave Amazon its initial advantage and wedge into selling everything else. For Bezos, who have seen a bookstore as a means to world domination at the beginning of the Internet age, when there was already a crisis of confidence in the publishing world in a country not known for its book-crazy public, was a stroke of business genius. Okay. That makes so, him sound really smart. So, um, well, he, well, he is really smart. <laughs> yeah. But um, so there's a lot there to unpack. And the first is that he literally likes books because of their physical properties. Because you can't break them. Item. Because they're easy to ship. They're hard to break. Um, you don't and, have to refrigerate them. Right, exactly. And there's a significant advantages to buying online. All for all the reasons we talked about with stock and stores and stuff. Like, 
Um, you know, people books are a great item to buy online because they're so specific and there's so many of them. Mm. So it's like the perfect thing to start an online retail thing. It's um, genius. With, and so, but there's there was one other bit um, with regard to books, and it kind of lies at the heart of why we like them. Um, and he sort of likes them because we like them in this way, <laughs> um, which is that they say something about us, right? Like when you buy books, especially on Amazon, what happens? You get a ton of recommendations for everything else. And the reason they're kind of able to accurately do that is because book taste, it, it, there's a pattern to it, right? Like the, the books you buy, I mean this is why reading is interesting and why discussing books you like with someone else is interesting. It says something about you and it probably, you know, if studied well enough, says something about your behavior. And if you read anything about Bezos, one thing he really liked about books is that he was aggregating consumer data. You know, like people would buy books and suddenly that was how he knew he could sell them something else based on their preferences and that. It's like taking – it's just getting information on people and very specific information that he could then use to sell a bunch of other things. The one thing that we've talked about a lot on this podcast is that publishing in many ways is like a big, slow-moving ship, yeah. right? Um, there has not been a lot of innovation in books in the last – Hundred years, right? I mean, you consider like how many ways can we make a They're, book really fancy? Well, we can have metallic ink on covers, and that's about it. <laughs> right? The same non-breakable thing that Jeff Bezos <laughs> loves. Right? But here's what we can yeah. do: yeah. we can be innovative in the way that people receive books. We can be innovative yeah. in the way people buy books. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'll say this forever: is really the only true innovation in publishing is with regards to distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so before, you know, we'll, we'll eventually do a really boring episode on what book distribution is and why it's so messed up. No, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> but basically it goes publisher, warehouse, wholesaler, yeah. bookstore, person. There's a lot of annoying There's a lot of returnable, returnability. There's yeah. a lot of horribleness, yeah. right? Um, Amazon has done something really interesting. Yeah. They have enough, I guess, space to mm-hmm. to house all of, like, tons and tons and tons of books. So the returnability isn't a huge issue, which means that books are kind of always available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but Amazon has really taken a shine to the idea of kind of crowdsourcing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they They bought Goodreads in 2013, which was this whole big hoopla, and it actually hasn't changed Goodreads a ton. Yeah. Um, but Goodreads was just a kind of apolitical site to say, hey, I really liked this book. Yeah. But it gives them more data and more sellability, yep. mm-hmm. right? They've also been a really, really strong innovator with regards to um, digital distribution. Oh. So I'm talking, um, and we've mentioned this a few times in this episode already, but renting ebooks yeah. beyond your beyond your library for a small subscription fee, which is really key because if you've ever tried to check anything out from your library, whether it's physical or digital, you know that you're very limited to what your specific county library has. Right. Um, they have everything. Mm-hmm. They also have Audible, mm-hmm. which is wonderful if you like to listen to audiobooks. They basically re-established audiobooks in the market. So the point, I mean, the point here I think you're making is that um, – in addition to all their other kind of innovations and stuff, one thing they really did was made it much easier for book to get to person. Yeah. I mean, and, look at the Kindle. Right. And so that's – and the, so the Kindle. 
is where we start to get into all kinds of crazy stuff because um, the Kindle became very um, quietly at the time. Um, it became synonymous with ebooks, right? It still is. Um, I would it argue. Still is. Oh, it, it very much is. But like at the time, um, you know, pe- there were ebooks existed. Like Amazon did not invent the ebook, despite how it feels right now. <laughs> as it, sh- you know, <laughs> um, but you know, e-readers weren't good. Um, you know, no one liked them. You couldn't store a bunch of books on your e-reader, which is one of the great innovations of the Kindle, um, even in its early stages. The file so format was that exactly. You could. It really made carrying around a bunch of digital books easier. Um, And I think publishers, and this is where we get into problems, right? And we're about to list a whole bunch of lawsuits. Um, But where we got into problems was that publishers didn't recognize what that thing was early enough. And they signed, and it kind of fundamentally rested on the idea that no publisher knew what an ebook should cost. They didn't realize how much value it was. They didn't realize what it should cost. And so very, very quietly, Amazon and all their distribution contracts with these publishers said, and we're just going to price every ebook at $9.99. Which, every, if you're an ebook reader si- now, they, that's extraordinarily high. Right. Um, so they said, we're going to make every ebook cost $9.99. And every, every big six publisher, every other publisher was like, that's fine. Let's do it. And for a while, everyone was happy because they sold and it made money. But then a really kind of basic <laughs> realization um, crept in to uh, most publishers' minds, which is that our books are worth more than 10 bucks. Imagine like if you that. think about um, how a publisher makes money, um, it's off hardcovers, right? It's off front list um, hardcovers, you know, selling for $28, for $30, for $25. Um, and the ebook pricing... It was just $9.99 no matter what. You give us a 150-page book, $9.99. Give us a 500-page tome about the history of Russia, $9.99. They didn't care. Amazon said this is what the book costs. And we don't have to store it. We don't have to have anybody right. send it out physically. And so this became – right, exactly. So this became a problem for publishers. They wanted things – they wanted their book to be priced higher. They wanted um, what was called an agency model of pricing. Uh, which basically said that they could chart, they could price the book however they wanted, and then they would just give a cut to, they would give like thirty percent of the sales to Amazon, and Amazon said, nope, the books are nine ninety nine again and again and again. This is what they were. Um, but so eventually, um, some fights ensued, and in two thousand ten, we got our first major lawsuit, which happened uh, with Macmillan, uh, which is one of the big six publishers. I mean, it's the um, it houses imprints like St. Martin's and Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux. I mean, all the kind, you know, a lot of very some um, big names. Some big names. I mean, it's a it's a major it's a major publisher. Um, and they um, they threatened, you know, as their one little bit of leverage, they sat down with Amazon and said, if you don't let us have control of our own pricing, we are going to window our ebooks. Explain what that Wi- means. Right. So windowing is when you release the ebook later than the print sale. Right. And so in publishing, you want to buy the book right away. Right. Like most of your sales come pretty soon after publication, first seven months, first six months. And so they said, we're not going to release the ebook until six months after the print book is on sale was basically Macmillan's point of leverage. They said, basically, by the time our ebook is out, anyone who wants to buy this book is already going to have read it. Um, which is kind of a strange tact to take, sort of cuts into your own sales. Yeah, we don't want money, um, right. but, <laughs> but I mean, it shows that they were willing so, to play hardball. And so so they tried to do this, and what they learned very quickly and what the entire publishing world learned very quickly is that Amazon does not care for your hardball. They do not care. They are not threatened by it, and they 
they're willing to get nasty. And so they did something that um, <laughs> really upset some people, including like the general public. Um, and it sounds kind of simple, but they pulled the buy buttons on Macmillan books. Um, it became incredibly circuitous and terrible to buy anything um, from Macmillan on Amazon, um, which wreaked havoc, right? Just that simple little thing. like, And that's the thing we're going to see is kind of this thing. If every, if every book sale goes to this one site, suddenly that one site's got a lot of power with just even how they lay out their algorithms, right? And so Amazon pulls the buy buttons and Macmillan panics because, of course, they do because suddenly now no one can buy their books. They basically drop the uh, A-bomb <laughs> exactly. in it's publishing. The, it's like – it's yeah, it's the nuke of book sales. You know I mean? You can't – um, and so this freaked everyone out. And eventually after I think even just a few days, uh, the general public backlash was so strong that Amazon was forced to kind of put it back. Um, and then um, all the publishers, all the big six publishers got together and were like, well, shit, this is a problem. And so they – Imagine that. <laughs> um, you know, so they sort of – they colluded is basically what happened and they sort of used joint leverage, um, all six of them together and said, we want – you know, we want agency model pricing. We want um, we want to be able to do this in the way that um, we're requesting, which is be able to price the books ourselves and have you um, you take a cut of those sales. They wanted to control their own pricing, which seems like such a fundamental thing and they probably could have had but they if, gave they, it up if right they had the just beginning. thought about it at the beginning, but they didn't. Um, and so Amazon, and rightly so, um, they, and this is in 2012, I think, and we're kind of going along this trail of um, what basically becomes these giant fights between these publishers and um, – And their retailer, you know, and this the retailer. one that makes them the most money. Right, exactly. Um, Amazon complained. And they like officially complained, right, not just like right, to right, right, the right. no. And they cited that um, the six major publishers were colluding, that they were um, colluding to fix prices, um, that it was unethical business, and they won, um, and they were right. And so, but the um, the compromise was such that Amazon was then allowed to discount the books how they mm -hmm. wanted. They weren't given back their cherished nine ninety nine, you know, ceiling, um, but they were told that. Um, you know, you can you can take a cut. You know, you can basically mark down. You know, the books in which man. which allowed which is key because yeah. it allowed Amazon to then use books as loss leaders. Which, yes. if you know anything about business, these are items that are priced below cost to bring somebody into the store so that they spend money on other things. Yeah. Well, so being able, yeah, suddenly being able to slash prices on their own site. Um, became a huge thing, and it's maybe the most fundamental thing that Amazon does. Um, for a little context here, I think that book sales are about 7% of all of Amazon's um, retail business right now. Very small. Amazon um, is not living and dying on books, which obviously publishers are, and so you can imagine already how some of this leverage ends up working. But um, what that means from a business standpoint is that they are willing to take losses in books as a means of getting market share. Yep. They are willing to sell you books dirt cheap so that you're going to do exactly what everybody's already doing, which is go on their site and buy books. They don't care if they're losing money on these titles. Um, they don't care if they're losing money in their book division overall because they're going to make it up elsewhere. Plus, they're going to get you to start becoming an Amazon customer. To come there first whenever you want to buy anything. Exactly. Um, to give you a little sense of specifically how 
dire the situation is. Um, in February, uh, an intelligence agency released that 43% of all online retail sales in the United States went through Amazon. Just last all retail. Year. All retail. All <laughs> online retail. Every yeah, single thing that wild. was bought online. Yeah. 43 out of 100 transactions yeah. was on Amazon. Yeah. That's which crazy. so so when we say seven percent of Amazon's sales are with books, they really don't care. Mm-hmm. They really, really don't care. Yeah. Um, so just on on 2012, again, just kind of stopping in our timeline for a second, at the point at which book publishers were found to have colluded, right? They were basically, you know, they teamed up and said, you know, we're gonna kind of stand together as separate companies and say Amazon can't do this to us. Um, that's kind of where some some certain rhetorical seating started happening on Amazon's end. Um, they basically started painting this case that's going to flare up in a couple years um, in 2014 um, that book publishers were sort of this, um, you know, elitist funnel, this gatekeeper that, um, you know, was just kind of not really interested in giving you a good deal but was rather interested in sort of you know, hiking up prices to preserve its precious hardcover market and so that, it, you know, out of its own self-preservation, right? Like, and this is kind of where Amazon gets this idea that um, or is able to kind of take this populist stance, right? We're going to make things cheaper for the consumer. And we, also look at how much better we are for authors. Right, exactly. You can just publish and you right. don't have to give any of your money to publishers. Right, exactly. We're going to help you publish. We're going to help you buy books. We're going to make this way more democratic. It's going to have nothing to do with these assholes out in New York City who want to charge 28 bucks for a book we'd gladly sell you for nine bucks, you know? This is um, for you, customers. This is for right. you. And so this culture war is starting, right? And Amazon, which – and if you think about what Amazon is, it's a pretty disingenuous um, tact to take, this sort of like people's movement, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but – you know they took that they took that side and they sort of painted and they were able to paint um, and they're not wrong about this by the way that New York City publishing is so you know it's self-referential it's only concerned with um, preserving itself all these things that they then use and so um, 2014 happens which is probably the most famous of um, the lawsuits that occurred um, between Amazon and one of the major publishers and this is Hachette. Right, which is another one of the big six now, the big five. Um, but their, you know, their contract, you know, their nego- their agreement was up, and it was time to negotiate. And Amazon wanted, or uh, Hachette wanted better terms for, you know, pricing and all the same things. Because their of, buddy Simon and right. Schuster had just gotten better Ex- terms. Exactly. So, um, and Amazon wouldn't give, and Hachette wouldn't give, and things got nasty quickly. And what we see time and time again. Um, is when things get nasty, Amazon starts to flex itself in a way that is immediately effective and has the ability to, like, and this, this I think, is one of the more despairing things for me. It's that um, there's no real fight here. Like, if Amazon wants to, you know, flex its muscle, it's got more muscle than you. Yeah. And so to, to so, give you a little bit of background, um, Hachette is literally 12 times smaller than Amazon. Mm-hmm. So Hachette is a $12 billion industry. And Hachette is the fourth biggest publisher in the world. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Amazon is $120 billion. Yeah. So that's insane. Yeah. Uh, that is insane. So Amazon started doing some of the similarly, um, I guess, you know, sketchy things 
that you know they did with McMillan a few years ago. They but they the, but they made it harder. They like they nuked harder. Well, there's more there's more stuff here. So they pulled the buy buttons. They um they started declaring things that were in stock. They suddenly delayed shipping times. They said this is going to take four to six weeks. Um, to get to you instead of being able to get to you within a few days, like is so they're so famously able to do. They pulled the pre-order button. They pulled the yeah. You were no longer able to pre-order books on Amazon. You were no longer um, able to get a discount. You know they they took you know and this is one of the funnier things, right? Like the Amazon fights so hard uh, for its right to discount books, right? Because it wants to sell you things cheaply, um, but then you the consumer get used to it. Right, and so when they pull those, when they pull that discount off, and suddenly they really are just letting Hachette price books at thirty-five bucks. They're like, well, this it. sucks. No one's gonna, <laughs> no one wants to buy it for that price, right? Um, and then they also, you know, they filled the Hachette book pages with um, recommendations of cheaper, similar books, right? You know, these sort of, um, you know, algorithms that would spit out things like, well, if you like this book, this other one is similar and also cheaper. You know, so basically they started using their site. To discourage people from buying Hachette books on their on their website, um, and this met with got met with all kinds of um, public outrage, right? Um, because Hachette has a lot of pretty big authors. You've got uh, James Steve, Patterson, right? You've got James Patterson, who um, you know screamed to high heaven, as you would imagine James Patterson would when the book sales stopped flowing. Um, Stephen Colbert, I don't know if you do you remember that segment. No. Um, yeah, he um, where. <laughs> Um, because his book, what his book had just published, um, it was that one, um, I am America and you can too. Oh that what yeah. It was when called? he was doing the Colbert report. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I remember he did that segment where, you know, he flips off Amazon and mm-hmm. then he pulls out like a, one of those like famous looking Amazon boxes, you know, the brown thing with like a little arrow on it. Um, and he puts his other hand in it and says, um, if you like this, you might also like this, and then flip them off with his other finger. Um, it was very funny. Um, but anyway, um, so they were also waging a really intense PR campaign. Well, that's the during thing. this time, and so this the culture war we were just kind of painting it sort of blew up because at the same time that you know Hachette is trying to you know strike this line where oh you're being bad for our authors, you're being bad for our authors, um, you know you're hurting consumers, you're hurting everyone. Amazon came in with a you know with a different line. They got back to their populist rhetoric. They basically said on the same thing as ever that you guys are acting as this gatekeeper um, and by creating this culture where the only publishing can come through you, not only are you able to set ridiculous prices um, and th- that was kind of at the center of um, and it's kind of been at the center of all this is what is a book worth right? Um, and Amazon believes it is worth much less than um, a New York publisher does. Um, and they said, well, um, you know, we sh- it, should be, it should be cheaper. And they started making a comparison to the paperback, which I found interesting. Um, paperback you know, th- versus hardcover, right, you mean? Right. They said, well, they're, they're going to try to do the same thing to the paperback that they did. Um, or they're just going to try to do the same thing to the ebook that they did to the paperback, which is kind of disvalue it and make it cheaper and not really feature it. Um, you know, Amazon and a lot of people believe that, you know, all books should be – they should be paperbacks, right, because they're cheaper. It's the same book. Um, a lot of people buy those. Um, and Amazon basically said the reason that they don't do that is because they're trying to gouge you on the hardcover. One of the other interesting fights, you know, in this PR battle, in this culture war that sort of happened is sort of like New York, um, you know, New York elite society versus, you know, West Coast tech, right? Um, it also – you know, they started using author 
a sort of a uh, concept to kind of hit each other with. And the fight kind of kind of became, well, who's better? Who's better for authors, right? And, you know, Amazon always claims that, you know, your sales are bigger with us, so, you know, you'll sell more. Um, New York publishers always make the claim that, you know, we should be able to price books how they are so that, you know, authors can get a certain cut. Um, and Amazon, so they they tried something crazy, right? They basically said, how about you, um, and this, is, this, this was like fought through the New York Times, you know, basically at this point. And... Um, Amazon suggested very publicly that if Hachette, you know, they would immediately stand down if Hachette took its share of, you know, online retail and gave it all to authors. <sighs> they said, if you give all of your, if you give that entire cut to the authors, we'll back off. And so you can see how that kind of works, right? That's like, absolutely not going to su- happen. Yeah. Suddenly, Amazon looks very pro-author and the publishers, um, you know, as they've been trying to paint them this entire time, look very money-grubbing um, and all these things. Um, but it didn't work. And Amazon ended up, quote unquote, losing this fight. But what kind of became interesting is um, what's best for the author? And that's where um, our good friend Andrew Wiley uh, kind of comes in. Tell, tell the people who Andrew Wiley, a.k.a. Okay. the jackal, <laughs> is. Okay, so I'm not even joking. He's actually yeah. called the jackal. So, well, one thing that was happening during this time, um, during this like giant standoff, was that authors were getting involved, and because authors were getting involved in kind of pledges and signing things and petitions and all this stuff, um, agents got involved, right? Because that is what happens when authors get involved in things, is agents also get involved. Imagine that. And so there's this guy, um, Andrew Wiley. He's probably the most, or at least he was, I don't, you know, um, the most powerful literary agent. And the most famous. In, yeah, I yeah. mean, he's, this is the guy. When you think of, like, the quintessential literary agent, this is, he's still going and everything. Um, tons of, you know, famous clients, all that kind of thing. Um, but he's notoriously anti-publisher. He's been um, quoted as saying that if he ever has a book earn out on an advance, he's failed as right, an agent. Right, he did it wrong. No, and it's, it's yeah. the, the basic logic for him is that um, he wants as much money for his clients as possible because, um, you know, his authors deserve that, and publishers should have to fork that over because they're not doing that good of a job anyway. Um, he's not necessarily wrong about some of those things. No. But the, what was interesting about him, his in, insertion into this particular fight, is he got immediately pro-publisher yeah. on this stuff. You kind, you would almost expect, like, as soon as someone else started squeezing uh, these publishers, that someone who had kind of made a career out of doing that exact same thing um, would jump on the would bandwagon. Would jump on the bandwagon, but he didn't. He got very, very uh, vocal anti-Amazon. And the reason um, is because Amazon's model, such that they want it, really, really dries up author funds fast. It really, really dries up, um, you know, author advances. It makes royalties smaller. Um, if Amazon has its way, publishers run out of money pretty quickly, Yeah. Um, which is where, you know, his clients are getting paid. And so um, – you know, it, to me, like that's probably the most like the guy who has spent his career being about as pro-author and as aggressive and as callous and as uh, you know cynical a way as there's ever been. Um, it proves that beyond where... <laughs> the rhetoric that Amazon is spouting, um, they're not good for authors. Well, so um, and we're going to kind of get into what all this means in a second once we get through this timeline. But um, one thing that happened, so Hachette eventually gets its way, right? 
they get to kind of do the thing, you know, with the pricing that they want. They get terms and ter- on the discounts and everything that are favorable to them. Um, for now, I mean, they're going to have to for do now. this. They're going to have to do this again when their contract is up in. And a it's going to be even bigger. And I'm it's sure. going to be the same fight. And um, you know, all these these things are going to keep happening. But um, some presses have decided they don't want to wait too long, that long to start fighting that fight before their contract runs out, and they have to deal with what Hachette dealt with, um, which is where we get the Penguin Random House merger, right? Um, there this, are a lot of reasons for this merger, sure, but this is a big sure, one. Sure, but this is a big one. Um, it basically, um, it kind of hinges to the same logic as we've been outlining, that when it wants to, Amazon is so much bigger than you that it can flex in whatever manner it pleases. And so if you want any shot at negotiating terms, you better be a big enough portion of their business um, that you matter and that you can kind of dictate terms and you can actually exert a little bit of leverage. Without – you know, right. getting accused of collusion. <laughs> well, so the collusion point is so interesting because you know they did get they did get caught earlier, right? They did. Yeah. You know, all six publishers. You know, they kind of were told, okay, well, you guys are clearly in cahoots doing this, you know, pricing thing. Um, but it's not collusion if you're the same company. <laughs> so these, you know, they they basically, honestly, that was it's a little bit of the logic is that um, if we are one entity legally. Then we can we can fight. We, we can coordinate and we can fight. Um, and you can see how this is happening. And so you start to see this pattern, right? Where um, the publishers are going to consolidate. They're going to get bigger as they sort of join up. Amazon is going to continue to grow and loom. Um, and you're just going to end up with these two giants, you know, punching each other. While um, who knows what happens in between with small presses, with mid-sized presses, with authors, you know. But Amazon's really smart because Mm -hmm. they're not just waiting for the terms to run out. They're looking for other avenues to kind of knock the wind out of the publishers as they stand. So something happened three days ago, which is as big of a news item as the Amazon charts. Yeah. Um, Amazon made a really, really tiny change to their buying page. Yeah. And it's a huge deal. Yeah. Um, so normally, you know, when you go to an Amazon page, you click the button, you say, okay, buy here. Um, and you're buying a new copy. You're buying it from the Amazon warehouse. Yeah. Amazon has recently changed it so that they run this, you know, special algorithm to, you know, take into a lot of factors. And so this buy button basically has a winner and the winner isn't always Amazon. Hmm. And so... What this means is that there well, who, are a who lot. Who else could be a winner? Third-party vendors. Uh-huh. So these are people that um, reselling that are reselling. Yeah. yeah, and so and so when it was just Amazon, like the terms weren't great, but at least it was publisher to Amazon to consumer, right? And you could trace that money all the way back. Mm-hmm. With third-party vendors, there is no information about where these books are coming from. You Mm -hmm. know, there could be people who are selling used books that are like new. Yeah. Um, There could be a lot of kind of fraud happening here. It becomes a garage sale. It could, yeah. And and so here's here's what happens. Um, Instead of the, you know, 50% that Amazon is then passing through to publishers or Mm -hmm. whatever the terms are, we don't know. when you buy a book through a third-party seller on Amazon, Amazon gets 15% of the total sale price, including shipping. Uh-huh. They also get a flat rate of $1.85 an item, and the rest goes to the third-party seller. Yeah, Nobody knows 
where the rest of the money is going. Yeah. Like that's the thing. And Amazon doesn't care. It's Amazon, just going to the third party. Amazon is. is not paying any attention to whether these people are getting actual books from yeah. publishers. They are caring, does this third party vendor have good reviews? Are they timely? Is, are they making me money? This is the only so this is this is what's kind of at the heart of that. Um and this is at the heart of everything Amazon does. Um and they're not necessarily, you know, based on, you know, the rules as they're set up, they're not in a very, very pure sense, they're not wrong to do it this way. But the only thing they care about is consumer experience. Yeah. Right? And so the question here is, um, and it's going to keep happening with other things, is is the consumer getting his book on time? And if the answer is yes, then who cares what happens the rest yeah. of the way? Who cares so who's what, getting paid? And so if the publisher is getting just that flat dollar eighty-five for you know the book that they believe is caught worth $28, by the way, um, <laughs> Who else isn't getting paid? Who knows? Authors. Yeah. Authors is who's not getting paid. If publishers aren't getting the money, it means royalty checks aren't as big. It means um, – and this is kind of what – this is kind of the big takeaway from this stuff. You know, and I think this is where we kind of have to head next as we've kind of, you know, brought us up to speed on the end of this history um, is what does any of this mean? Like – where are we now? What is what can we glean from what Amazon thinks about books, about art, about any of the people in this publishing ecosystem, whether it's editors, whether it's authors, whether it's booksellers? Um, I don't know. Like to me, there are some really troubling signs there, um, and I wanna I wanna read a passage. Um, actually, it's from a Vanity Fair profile. Um, of profile Amazon. of who? Of um, Amazon. Of Amazon. Oh, okay. It's, this is a this is from a piece called "The War of the Words." Uh, Vanity Fair published, I believe, in uh, 2014. Um, So this is a paragraph from there. So much ingenuity has been deployed to solve the problem of reading in their different ways by Kindle engineers, by the warehouse software specialist, by Otis Chandler at Goodreads. And I remembered something about a book editor, one of the best I know, had said to me about the Amazon situation. They're always talking about inefficiency, he said. Publishing is inefficient. Print is inefficient. I mean, yeah, but inefficiency, that's human. That's what being a human is. The Kindle really is an extraordinary device. The fulfillment centers are wonders of undeniable efficiency. They, too, represent a remarkable human achievement. But art, by definition, is something for which there is no practical use. And so (laughs) I hear that, and what I think, you know, obviously this ties into things that are, you know, much bigger than book publishing um, as it relates to... Um, you know, efficiency and people and automation and all this stuff. Um, but what you fundamentally have here to me is the the party with the most leverage over books is the entity that cares the least about books yeah. for what they are, right? It's an entity that is here because books are easy to ship. You know, in some ways, I can't fully blame them for that because publishing has left the door wide open for yeah. them to come in. Yeah, they have. I mean, if you consider – so we, we've, we're we going to be talking about this for the rest of our lives about how publishing is an art that's turned into a business. And a lot of people treat it too much like a business and a lot of people treat it too much like an art. Mm-hmm. And I feel like publishing as a whole, especially with the rise in technology, they haven't been paying attention to that because they've been saying, but well, art though. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so I have, I kind of, in response to your quote, I have a quote yeah. from Betsy Burton, who is um, 
the president of the American Booksellers Association. Remember that when I read this quote to you. Mm-hmm. And who is a person who has run the King's English books, Bookshop for 37 years. Okay. Okay. So this is somebody who deals with book selling and booksellers. Yeah. It's so galling. They are using books as loss leaders to sell more. I don't know, washing machines. Amazon sees books as products. I've never thought of books as products. This is a woman who runs the American Booksellers Association. And has run a bookstore for 37 years. And has run years. a bookstore for 37 years. And she's years. never thought of books as a product. Never. So on the one hand, it's very nice, right? It's very nice it that is. this woman who, you know, she thinks of, um, you know, books as, you know, never just a product, right? But it, like it is a product at the end of the day. But what's happened um, is Amazon thinks of it only as that. And there's really, I mean, this is maybe the hopeless feeling about it is there's not really any incentive to make them have to do so beyond just like sentiment. You know, like what's the thing you always hear, you know, in response to Amazon? It's like go to a bookstore, you know, go to your independent bookstore and buy a book. And it's like that's just not – that's not the game here, man. Like (laughs) that's – it's nice. That's nostalgia and yeah, in your own way, you know, you're doing your part. But like that's, you know, pebbles at a battleship, you know. Like it's nostalgia – and sentimentality and treating books as art in a functional sense, it's not going to be what saves book publishers. It's always going to lose. It might be what saves. It might be what saves books. You know, in the end, because we're always going to have books in some form. But it might like that could really undo. You know, a publishers. The fact that they relate to this stuff. The fact that you know Amazon. You know, for all of their and I do think you know. Um, you know, as they take this this giant, you know, corporation takes this populist rhetoric and says that they're going to, um, you know, open things up and make, you know, remove the gateway and take um, all the money away from the New York snobs and, you know, you know, ruin the establishment and give it back to the people and let you have the books you want at your price and let you publish what you want. Um, it feels it's really it's obviously quite cynical coming from there, and it's not necessarily you know that sort of false populism is obviously something we've seen in other um, realms of our recent (laughs) existence. Um, I'm thinking of the election. But, um, you know, (laughs) there's, you know, there's a human cost to this stuff. I think something that a lot of people don't realize is that Amazon used to have, like, book people on staff, you know? Reviewers and editors. Exactly. They used to have, like, people whose job it was to review books on Amazon. And they still have a few. But, I mean, like, if you really hunt, there's, like, a book blog on Amazon somewhere in there. Um, you know, and they used to have, um, you know, they used to try to publish books, actually. They still, I mean, they, they have imprints. Right. But they were bad at it. And it's because they just don't give a shit. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, that's where, like, being someone who thinks of a book as something other than, like, you know, a, a couch. They're being um, successful it, now, given the, the success with, like, Amazon original series and yeah. like Netflix original series. They're kind right. of taking the model from TV now. Right. And they're making the book successful but, but not on the book's merit. It's on right, the brand merit. Right. But so back when they started this, all those people got fired because they realized they could do it better with algorithms. <laughs> you know, they realized that the reviewing mechanism was best left crowdsourced. You know, that consumer reviews were way more important than anything they were going to pay someone to say. They realized that recommendations and like titles and all that stuff was something they could easily do with a computer. Um, and I don't know. It's just they end up. Um, everything just becomes this question of what information can we pull from a computer? And yeah. the answer is a lot of it. And, you know, we've, ta- we've talked a lot 
um, on this show before about publishers becoming risk-averse, right? About how there's kind of become this dichotomy between books that get no attention and no upfront money and then giant books by proven names who um, get a ton of money to publish something that a publisher um, views as safe, right? Yeah. I'm going to sell um, a million copies even though it's shitty. Exactly. It's, it's kind of this boom and bust model as opposed to finding things that um, might break out, you know, taking risks. Um, that's only going to increase. And what that does is that's – like anytime publishing gets – this is I think a pretty you know, true you know, axiom – Anytime publishing gets more risk averse, that hurts the most talented writers. Yeah. I think it hurts the people that, um, you know, aren't necessarily the most obvious choices, but they've got something really worthwhile to say. It hurts, um, I don't know, it hurts people who wouldn't get a shot otherwise, but maybe a talented editor sees something in them and they're, they're allowed by their publisher to take a chance. You know, it hurts, it hurts diversity, right? Because, um, when there's less money in publishing, the only people who are able to make a career out of writing are the ones who already have money, right? And the and then the, this the secondary effect of that is that a talent drain happens within the industry itself because if there's way less interesting books to work on, then the really smart people aren't going to come work on them. You We've know? criticized publishers and, a lot for moving to this blockbuster model. But yeah. the truth of the matter is is that it's not happening in a vacuum. Yeah. And if you consider how they make their money, sales. I mean, you have to consider sales and retailer partners as yeah. a big um, force in why they make the decisions that they do. Yeah. And Amazon behaving the way that they do and squeezing every single penny they can out of every single deal. It affects everything. It affects everything. Um, and, you know... <laughs> It's just so funny to me to see Amazon, you know, every time one of these fights comes up to try to take the, you know, the human aspect, you know, like you think about, you know, you know, you hear these stories of people who work there like in their warehouses, right? Like, you know, I read one thing today, um, you know, they have, you know, there was a stretch there where they refused to install air conditioning in their warehouses and they literally just had ambulances like on call waiting outside for like <laughs> workers to like pass out. That seems way and more expensive in, than AC. <laughs> they, no, and they put in the AC finally once they started doing fresh produce. Oh, God. Because they needed to keep the food cold. There you go, um, ladies and gentlemen. Your um, life matters less than a carrot. <laughs> um, but it's like – and so – and they're constantly moving toward automation and they're constantly finding like – you know, you know, a- Amazon is on this relentless pursuit and relentless.com is what he almost called it. By the way, really? Yeah, it, Amazon was almost relentless, and but they are relentless, and um, in such a way that even like you know they're just like constantly looking for ways to replace their employees with machines. They're constantly looking ways to just get like more out of those people, you know, on the floor actually doing the physical finding the stuff and putting it, you know, in the in the shipping and like I don't know, man. It's on the one hand, there's nothing in in our society that says they have to behave any differently because our economy and our, you know, financial systems are such that they are. But, like, I'll, honestly, it's just, like, this can't be good. No. <laughs> I, you know what? I think it's, I think as we were planning this episode, we kept circling around the idea is does good – being good for the consumer mean good for books? Yeah. And I That's think the, the answer – and I think that we've decided that that is kind of a, a, a false question because I think what we've talked about here – is that Amazon is not good for the consumer. They're good for the consumer like right now when I have $20, yeah. you know, in my bank account and I really need a book. Yeah. Um 
but it's not good long term because if you consider the talent drain, if you consider the um, kind of the the shifting the shifting market, and you know, if we consider what is good for the consumer, it's not uh-huh. only low price, but it's also includes quality and produced. varied products. Yeah. And if Amazon is consistently trying to close that loop and squeeze out the options that are yeah. available long term, yeah. we're going to be pulling away from that really varied tradition of what a book is. And that's beyond just it's a rectangle piece of, you know, a bound it's paper. Something easy, it's something specific and easy to ship. Which yeah. is all this originally But if we with. consider the words on the pages, yeah. which drives people to spend thousands of dollars. Well, so let's think about let's let's talk about that for a second because um, obviously anyone listening to this show thinks of books as having something of more value than the paper they're printed on. You know, um, if you know there are politics and there's like a real cultural um, significance to what's being published and how it's being published um, and who's being allowed to publish. Um, whenever that gets affected, that matters on more than just a business level, right? That matters on a cultural level. Mm -hmm. Um, When you change who is allowed to write the books, and this is changing that because it's changing which authors are able to financially afford making a writing career. It's changing acquisitions decisions. It's changing all these things. When that changes, you really are talking about, um, you know, this war of ideas that gets made different, you know? And, like, sure, maybe there are alternate routes um, and that'll have to work itself out. But, like, um, all this stuff, like, they can, you know, they can say all they want that books aren't art and, you know, it doesn't have a pragmatic use. But they are art and this is affecting the art. And it's going to have, I think, some pretty drastic effects if it hasn't already on, um, you know, what gets made. I mean, this... Maybe that's like the one takeaway from this whole like rambling historical <laughs> thing we've done is that Amazon at the end of the day is affecting which books get made. Yeah. And and, and a lot of you are kind of if you're listening at home thinking, but what about all of the wonderful things Amazon has done for self-publishing? Yeah. You have to remember that a big part of what books get read is not just what books are available, mm-hmm. but what books are actually purchased and opened. And the truth of the matter is, is that by telling everybody that they can publish their book with no problem just on their own, you're uh-huh. creating kind of this white noise, and it's really hard for something to rise above. Would you say that that white noise requires a gatekeeper? I mean, Or some sort of editorial vetting process? I don't think it necessarily requires it, but it requires— How do you deal with that white noise, Laura? Come on. <laughs> I mean, what I'm saying is that— um, the model of publishing in whatever form it yeah. ends up taking is that you're going to need it because something has to sift through the white noise of every yeah. single person on earth having a book idea. Even if it's just like well-written copy and a nice cover yeah, or, you know, something that doesn't have like yeah. commas as apostrophes, right. Right. you know, like right. if, if you consider the, that, that white noise, even a self-published author, even a quality self-published author has to have industry insider knowledge to be able to sell their book it also makes um you know it also deals with promotion right and suddenly i mean think about what's what's happened even to this conversation suddenly we're sitting here like making a case for the existence of a publisher (laughs) you know what i mean and that's what this that's what they're trying to do that's the very definition of an existential crisis (laughs) literally that's what it is and that's what Amazon has cost, I think, in most publishers. And yeah, Penguin Random, Penguin and Random House can team up and exert a little bit of leverage for a little while, but Amazon's going to keep growing, and it's going to keep growing. Like you know, whenever um, they do 
um, you know, reports to investors, you know, books barely even get mentioned. No, no one, no one invested in Amazon cares about books because they don't need to. It's not a major part of their business. Um, so it's like we're like this niche. That's, I mean, one way or the other, it's we're gonna get crushed. <laughs> um, or how about this? Because writing in books are not going to get crushed. What might get crushed is the model that we have. Yeah. And that's gonna have to change somehow because um, the path that we're on, Amazon has correctly identified as being outdated and slow and maybe a little bit snobbish. They're and, not wrong. And no, they're right. And and perhaps in certain spots worthy of toppling. But man, that toppling has an interim cost. You know, like that is not just a math problem. That's a human problem and it's an art problem. And I feel like we're right on the brink of having to deal with a lot of that stuff. Um, but I guess I guess we'll see, huh? On that happy note, I think we should give the people their pub tip. All right, you ready for the pub tip? Okay. Let's go to a damn bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> and not not purely for nostalgia reasons, not purely because, you know, you, you like to walk in and smell the books and maybe get a cinnamon roll in the corner. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> but, like, go because that model matters. Like, yeah. because you are making a conscious yeah. cho- choice to value the model of going in and talking to an actual bookseller, somebody who is actually taking into account like your tastes and doesn't care about the fact that you were browsing like the best hot yoga mat Mm -hmm. available on the market. Mm -hmm. And with that, I'd like to thank you to coming to this, our very involved in historical (laughs) and ranty 31st episode about Amazon. Um, we loved having you here. Thank you so much. Remember, First Pages show goes live this Thursday, the 25th, mm-hmm. which I can't imagine how you'd be more excited about that after you just heard <laughs> us go through all of this. Um, uh, but send us your first page at printrunpodcast.gmail.com, yeah. and we will see you for a regular episode next week. Bye. Bye.